welcome to At Work Race Reflections podcast, which is all about inequality, injustice, and oppression in the workplace. And first of all, before we go anywhere, Happy New Year. Let me take this opportunity to wish you the very best for 2022 and to thank you very much for your support, for your engagement, for your feedback, and for all of you who continue to share, to distribute, to make some noise about what we do here at Rest Reflections and specifically about at work. Thank you so very much. And I hope that we all have a more peaceful, a more joyful and perhaps even a more restful year. So again, thank you and my very best wish for 2022. And so here we are, here we are, my good people. This is, I believe, episode 21. I'm pretty sure it is episode 21. And it is episode one when it comes to this new year. And so from my living room slash library slash office slash all-purpose room, I am going to talk to you today about assimilative politics or assimilation in the workplace. And this is something that I guess is quite live in my mind right now because of some of the exchanges that I've had over the years in particular spaces, often therapeutic spaces, actually. But I want to talk a little bit about assimilation, what uh, it means, what the implications are for uh, marginalized employees. Of course, we tend to focus here on people who are marginalized because of being racialized as black or brown. And so we are going to focus on race. But some of those issues are going to echo the experience of other marginalized groups and others whose identities find themselves at the intersection of more than one acts of oppression. So why do I want to speak today about assimilation or about assimilative politics in relation to work? Well, let me give you, I guess, maybe a bit of an anecdote, something that sometimes happened to me. For those who know me, they will know that I am a fairly vocal person. I mean, I do speak my mind. And when I have something to say, I will say it. If I don't agree with something, I will tend to say it. And so I think I'm quite transparent and I think I'm quite straightforward. And generally, I tend to find people who are (laughs) maybe like me a little bit easier to deal with because you kind of know what you're dealing with. You kind of know what is on people's mind. Now, of course, there are cultural factors at play and there are race factors at play, there are gender factors at play. Nonetheless, what I want to think about is this feedback that I guess over the years I have received and others have received because I see it in the work that I do clinically with patients of colour when they are told that they need to perhaps not speak about that you've experienced or they need to be careful about bringing particular issues to do with race in the workplace. And so fairly recently, this has happened to me in a therapeutic space where I was praised for not bringing 
race into a particular conversation. Now, I'm using this as an example, and that happened in a particular point in time and in a particular space. But I do want to say that this is a common experience. It's not the first time that it has happened to me. As I said, it's not the first time that people have reported similar experiences. You know, this experience is fairly well documented. I mean, it looks differently depending on who you speak to. It appears in the therapeutic or clinical literature. And I think it also appears in the occupational literature. So this expectation that, wow, isn't it easier? Isn't it lovely? Isn't it more peaceful when so-and-so do not bring race or do not bring racism into the equation? Now, the particular event that I'm making some reference to, amongst others, this was given as a compliment. It was not intended to cause offence or to create the disturbance that, you know, those of you who know me will know that that would create because my response to that and my response to those sort of comments tend to be, well, I am a black woman. And so therefore, I will not leave aspect of myself. And often it is my blackness more than it is me being a woman that causes people problem. And so, yes, I am black and I am a woman, but the woman aspect of my being doesn't tend to create the kind of agitation, the kind of disturbance, the kind of irritation when I connect to it, right? And so it is, of course, the black aspect of being a black woman that causes disturbance. We could have another conversation about intersectionality, the limitation of intersectional thinking when it comes to the more nuanced and the more complex relational processes. But nonetheless, suffice to say that there is something about blackness that can really trigger off people. And so therefore, by extension, and that's the point that I want to make here, um, that people who are racialized as black more than people who are racialized as brown, to a lesser degree, nonetheless, they to experience this kind of experience where essentially people are told that they need to live their blackness or their brownness out of a particular space, out of a particular institution to be accepted. Now, in the context of my own experience, when comments of that nature, regardless of intention, are uttered, I tend to challenge them. And I tend to say that if those comments are bottomed out, it leads us to the idea that for me to be acceptable, I need to essentially turn myself white. And so this is where the thinking around assimilation might be helpful for us to do. So just very broadly, when we are speaking about assimilation, we are talking about the process by which we take on, let's say, dominant groups norm, or we are expected to behave, to think, to be in the world in a way that is consistent with dominant groups' requests, norms, expectations, etc. So we're talking here, of course, about whiteness very specifically. So 
in the case of black and brown employees, assimilation would be the expectation that black and brown employees must behave, must think in a way that is essentially consistent and that support whiteness. And that is a very common expectation. It is usually a silent expectation. Sometimes organizations themselves don't even know that this expectation exists. And that's when it becomes a lot more dangerous and toxic because some of the rules, for example, about whose faces fit, who belongs, who does not belong, are often grounded in spurious criteria. And those criteria, again, if we look at them very closely, are criteria that essentially support white ways of thinking and being in the world. So if we think about assimilation perhaps a bit more closely and I guess wonder about the way that it may manifest in the workplace without wanting to kind of patronize anyone. And I hope I'm pitching it at the level that's about right for everyone. But essentially, how do we know that assimilation or assimilative pressure are in operation in the workplace, where we might get a sense of them if people of color, if employees of color feel the pressure to speak a particular way, usually a way that is, again, consistent with white, often male norms, to dress a particular way that might be alien to them, to bring certain issues or not bring certain issues to work, to challenge certain issues or to be silent on certain issues, to name things or to not name things, to interrogate things or to not interrogate things. So it is a very heavy set of expectation that we place on employees of color, which often mean that people cannot live authentic life in the workplace. Of course, there's always going to be a level of maybe you might argue integration that is required for any system to work and there's always going to be some compromise that are required for a team to function. Nonetheless, I guess the issues that I want to bring your attention to is that sometimes those compromises, if not most of the time, sometimes those kind of integration expectation leave those who are marginalized with the onus to transform who they are in order to fit in. And that has a cost, a cost that has been well documented. If we look at the assimilation literature in relation to health or in relation to mental health, if we look at the theoretical literature, so I'm thinking Fanon, of course, who is my intellectual hero, some of you might know. We know that there is a cost in relation to self-alienation, in relation to disconnection, to one's value. And so a very hefty, hefty price to pay to be seen as belonging. And so this is what I really wanted us to think about today. Why would it be acceptable to say to a person who is marginalized, well, you know what, when you don't talk about what it is like to be trans, I can relate to you so much better. Or, or you know what, if 
only you make me forget about your disability. Somehow, I see you a bit more as a human being. Or you know what? When you don't talk about racism, Gillen, it's like you are a different person. Well, guess what? It might well be. But I'm afraid I cannot split off my blackness from who I am in the same way that I cannot split my gender from who I am. And those requests are highly oppressive and actually quite toxic and harmful to people who are marginalized. So what are the messages that they give out in relation to the culture of the organization? It's essentially a message of conditional inclusion, conditional value. So the value that we put or we place on certain bodies is conditional upon the degree with which they assimilate that. That means they disconnect, that means they dissociate, or that means they alienate themselves from part of who they are. So it is not, of course, a case of inclusion at all. It is, in fact, a case of exclusion, or we might say it is a case of conditional inclusion. And in fact, none of us, none of us want or need conditional inclusion within oppressive systems. In fact, nobody needs inclusion. What we need is liberation and unconditional humanity. And with that, the capacity to exist as human who are positioned within particular social structures and those structures shape our experience of the world, sadly, how we view the world, sadly, how we name the world, sadly. And so therefore, the conversation that we can have at work if we are given the space to have them. So what can I suggest? As you know, at work is all about thinking together or attempting to think together about resolution, about solution, about uh, mitigation, about how do we go from here? The first question is think about the people that you have in mind, those people that you've come in contact with, those people that might even be your colleagues or your peers and pick those that you have a hard time with, that you find it hard to connect with, that somehow seems to be out of place in your eyes. And I really want you to ask yourself this, sit with the discomfort of considering that there may well be some spurious ground upon which you have decided that those people don't fit or that you cannot relate to them. Now, of course, I'm not discounting that sometimes people are difficult. I'm not discounting that, you know, I'm the easiest person to deal with. You know, I have, I have a strong mind and I'm not discounting the fact as well that, you know, personality conflict do arise and they arise in all contexts, but they can be. And in my experience, they are often a cover up for racism. They are often a cover-up for sexism and they are often a cover-up for ableism, which is the person that require of us, the employees, the peer that require of us to do more effort to understand them, to empathize with them, to show compassion towards them are usually problematized. And that means that they become, again, an expression that I use over and over again, the site, the location of the disturbance. And so they are at risk of being outed. 
and excluded. So think very carefully about those individuals. And I would put the honors on you to consider what you may do, what you may do to kind of build this bridge to understand their lived experience. So that is number one. Number two, think about some of the ideas, some of the models, some of the prototypes that you have in your mind when you think about leadership, when you think about, uh, you know, a therapist, when you think about a psychologist, when you think about a university professor, whatever, whichever domain of activity you are located in. And then I want you to spend some time considering the trait, the attribute, the demographics, the identity, have a present, have a speak, have a dress, all of this stuff. You can start to build a character of what those people look like in your mind and ask yourself, are those attributes that you've put together in your imagination or imagery, what you've put together, are they really attributes that are required to perform the job that you have in mind, or they are simply things that you are being accustomed to, simply perhaps by habituation or perhaps by what you have been exposed to? And if so, what are the implications in relation to welcoming other people who may not have those attributes, but who are equally capable of fulfilling particular activities and to perhaps bring something different, something special to the table? And number three, once you have done this job and this reflection, I'd like you to maybe spend a little bit of time thinking about counterexample, about alternative models for people who don't match those expectations, those criteria, those kind of qualities or traits or attributes. And I'm talking about the spurious thing, like have a dress, have a speak, whether they have an accent or not an accent, have a wear the hair, or the light stuff that is pretty much in 90% of the activities that we undertake completely irrelevant and ask yourself whether you can seek them out alternative example counterexample to prove to you that people who do not conform with the ideal person of the fist who fits can perform the role that you have in mind and that's really important and I hope I offer something of a counterexample this is also part of my politics in terms of how I operate that I am absolutely unapologetic about speaking how I speak naturally, as naturally as I can in the tone more or less that comes to me naturally as a black woman. That includes sometimes the hand gesturing. That includes sometimes being passionate. That includes bringing my lived experience, including that of marginalization. Because unless we all do that, then we contribute to the pathologization, to the othering of certain way of being in the world. And so that is it. Episode 1 of 2022, a little bit of assimilation. I think I was a little bit screamish out to in this one. Let me know. I hope it makes sense. As always, thank you very much for listening. If you have some feedback, some comment anything else you would like us to address get in touch contact at restreflections.co.uk or at work at restreflections.co.uk 
And again, happy new year. All the best for 2022. And as always, please take care.